0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank ZipRecruiter, Harry's, Babbel, The Great Courses Plus, and our contributors
1: at Patreon for making tonight's show possible.
0: Last week, we took you through the Patterson-Gimlin film itself. Consider yourself a 101-level graduate. Tonight, we're going to take a look at the claims of a hoax by various parties over the years. We'll take you down the rabbit hole of their motives, priorities, and peccadilloes. You'll gain a finer understanding of the personalities of the folks involved in this complex legend as it unfolded, and we'll give you the tools you need to assign whatever filter you think appropriate to the angle of each participant's accounting of events, as well as some of their accusations. We'll discuss an old practical joker who claimed he started the entire Bigfoot phenomenon. We'll talk about the infamous ape suit and the man who claimed to have worn it, Bob Hieronymus. We'll cover the folks who said they made that suit and sold it to Roger Patterson when he called the Philip Morris Costume Shop in Charlotte, North Carolina, way back in 1967. Mystery solved, right? You know better than that.
1: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest
0: Burgess. True believers still cling to the film as the most credible indication that something is out there. Since at this writing, 36 years have passed, and definitive proof of a hoax has not surfaced. Anthropologist David Daigling from his 2004 book, Bigfoot Exposed, in the intervening 15 years since its publication, proof of a
1: hoax has still not emerged. Join us tonight for part three of our in-depth series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. And we're back. Be sure you listen to tonight's outro to hear about a very special bonus show coming up. Is it time? For what? To announce the pint glasses. Well, now that you've said it. (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, folks, we have uh, have pint glasses. Uh, Yeah, you guys asked for them like three years ago. We finally made them. There are logo versions of them in the store now. And here's the other thing. This is just the beginning. There are more pint glasses coming, but you must wait, my pretties. All right, let's get back to the PGF. So we just finished an overview of Roger Patterson. Now we want to talk a little bit about Bob Gimlin. The interesting thing about Bob Gimlin is, you know, he was there that day, but he did not have the camera. And in the Patterson-Gimlin film, he does not appear on camera at all. So... No. Well he, he oh go ahead. Let me finish. <laughs> no, I, I refuse. <clears throat> but he's in he's in a lot of the other footage from that day. Yes, the horseback footage. Exactly. So he's he's on camera, but he is not in the famed Patterson Gimlin film or what people know as the Patterson Gimlin film, which is those 954 frames of footage that includes the footage of Patty. He's not there, but we know that he was there that day. No one has ever disputed that. Now, a lot of people have cast aspersions on Roger Patterson because he was, it seems, maybe a little bit flaky and a little bit too much of a dreamer. Some people are saying, oh, well, he was a con man and a shyster. Irresponsible. Irresponsible. And even, even
0: he knew that. He kind of knew what people thought of his character. And and he let his, I think, ambitions and youthful optimism and exuberance get away from him in some
1: cases. And he wasn't all that buttoned up financially. Well, even in, in Greg Long's book, which sets about out pretty hard to make Roger look like he should not be believed. Even when Greg interviews Al Diatley, who is definitely an opportunist, and it's clear from his own interview, and I think he would say that to you, to your face, if you asked him, Al Diatley says, Roger, yeah, he borrowed money and didn't pay it back. But he said in that book, and I'm paraphrasing here, I didn't personally believe that when he was asking for that money, that it was his intention not to pay it back. Right. It's just the way he was. And we've since done a lot more research and even talked to Bob Gimlin and our impression of Roger Patterson is that, yeah, he was that guy, but he was still a friend. He was a friend to Bob, and he was not a person that necessarily categorically should not be trusted.
0: Right. He didn't take that money or whatever money he got, say if he borrowed uh, the money from some potential investors, then go out and buy a jet ski. Right. <laughs> he took that money to further his research into Bigfoot. He was that, you could say, obsessed with it.
1: Obsessed, yeah. and to a fault. And it's a good use of that particular expression. But getting on to Bob Gimlin, this is from this point forward, Here tonight anyway. This gets to be a little bit the tale of the two Bobs. We've got Bob Gimlin and Bob Hieronymus. Now, Bob Gimlin is a lot more famous than Bob Hieronymus because Bob Gimlin is the Bob Gimlin of the Patterson Gimlin film. (laughs) Yes. Bob Hieronymus found some fame associated with this a little bit later on. Bob Gimlin, though, and I think you can say this pretty much across the board no matter how much research you do, nobody has ever accused Bob of having any of the personality traits that they've accused Roger of having. They have questioned some of his story kind of changing a little bit or some details being fuzzy here and there. But the more you look at it, the more you realize that when somebody's telling the same story over and over for decades, yeah, things get a little askew because that's just how the memory works. But the variances in what he says are not wide. They're pretty narrow.
0: Yeah, because his initial estimates visually of the creature, you know, he would say he revised later, but that was a time of great excitement and just mind-blowing, what am I looking at here? I mean, that's how he describes how he felt. It's just, he believed to this day, since the beginning, that it was an organic, natural creature. It was not an imposter of something. It was not a guy in a suit. It was not a bear. It was something totally different that he'd never seen before, even on movies and TV. And He didn't know what it was. So, in that kind of momentary state of shock, you know, and then when you first get questioned about it right afterwards, your initial estimates about what you see are not always clear until you give it some time, sit and think about it, and really go back through your memory and adjust it because you are in, you know, a great state of excitement. And when people are asking you right after it happened, Yeah, you're not always thinking clearly. So that's what Bob would say. It's like, yeah, I I just, you know, people were asking us right away what we thought. And the same thing happened with Roger is that Roger increased his, I think, the height by a foot and the weight. But like I said before, these gentlemen were very familiar with large animals, horses and cattle especially. So I would trust them a lot more than the average
1: person to judge the weight of, of another large creature. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that even though Bob was out there, He didn't necessarily really believe in Bigfoot until he came around that tree and Patty was standing there.
0: Yeah, he didn't know what to think. He just thought, like I said, if there's any similarities with Roger and why they were friends is that they're both avid outdoorsmen, very skilled. They both had that cowboy spirit, which is just get out there, have fun, ride horses. I mean, they were both exhausted, but why not go on an adventure, you know? These were not couch potato kind of guys. They got out there and did stuff. And as Scott said, really, a lot of this argument When it comes down to the circumstantial evidence, this testimony by different people who said they did what where, it really boils down to who do you believe, Bob Hieronymus or Bob Gimlin? Because Bob Hieronymus says, yeah, Bob Gimlin was in on it. He was in on the hoax the whole time. And Bob Gimlin has
1: always flatly denied this. No, I was not in any way. So the next thing we're going to do here is take a look at a lot of the... Questions that people have been asking over the years, researchers and folks who do believe Bob Gimlin and, and folks that don't believe Bob Gimlin. We're going to take a look at all the circumstances surrounding his part in this story. Right. So there are a
0: few suspicions about Bob Gimlin because he was there, and it's one of those scenarios that you're darned if you do, darned if you don't. No matter what you do, somebody's going to think that's suspicious. And in Bob's case, well, he helped out a little tiny bit to help promote the film for a short while at the beginning, but for the most part, he didn't participate in the appearances, mostly because he couldn't be away from his job. You know, he still had a full-time job to do and he had to provide for his family, put biscuits on the table, as he said in his Fresno appearance, which we attended. (laughs) Also, his wife was getting pretty upset with being harassed at her job as a bank teller until she moved to a position where she didn't have to deal with the public as much and their constant ridicule. So imagine being a bank teller Every third customer is like, oh, you're the husband of the Bigfoot guy, you know. So that constant ridicule and attention greatly upset and disappointed her. And, you know, Bob felt really bad about it. So he curtailed a lot of his connection to the film. But this scrutiny started at the very beginning for Bob because he was absent during the first film screening that Sunday after the encounter. Although he was home resting and recuperating after that grueling and exhausting trip back from Willow Creek. And we always mention that because that's going to factor into Bob Hieronymus's claim is a very strenuous truck trip down that 22-mile stretch of really bad road, that logging road to get out of the mountains to the highway to begin with. And what did
1: we say before 14 hours to get all the way home, like he was totally exhausted. Also, you have to remember the mountain was falling down into the canyon as they were driving because it was raining so hard. So they were on top of a mudslide in a truck with three horses in the back. And along the way, they got stuck and had to, uh, I guess, hotwire an earth mover or borrow (laughs) one to uh, recover the vehicle. It was so exhausting. And then he went on to point out that after all that was done, they still had to drive all the way to Yakima. Yeah. And at that point, all he could do was sleep. He was exhausted. So the next day when they were showing the film, he couldn't care less. He was so tired, he wanted to
0: rest. And that Uh, makes sense. Yeah, I I imagine he thought, well, I'll see it at some point. Yeah. I'm sure he was excited. Where's it going? (laughs) He just saw it in person. Yeah. I'm sure if Roger told him, hey, we got something on film. You're not going to believe this. We captured it. He'd be great. Uh, I can't wait to see it. But first, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rest up. Like I said, he was there. So he had the best high definition viewing you could imagine. But forever on from that point, he was under scrutiny because of his seeming lack of involvement in the promotion of the film afterwards and his unwillingness to talk about the encounter in the years after it or to give interviews. And basically, people suspected Bob was in cahoots with Roger and had some involvement with the hoax or that he had been unknowingly
1: hoaxed by Roger. Well, Bob is now 87 years old, as of this recording that we're making right now, and he is determined to set the record straight about the event and talk about his involvement with it and what he personally believes to be the truth. One of the things he explained when we saw him in Fresno just a few days ago was that Roger Patterson didn't have a regular full-time job. And Al Diatley, who Roger got a lot of money from when he needed it for things, owned his own successful company so they could afford in their own ways to travel around promoting this film. And I think we indicated earlier, Diatley clearly saw dollar signs, probably not even caring if the creature in the film was real or not. What he saw was something that they could take around and and make a lot of money on so it seems to me like he took over he pushed roger aside he got in the captain seat he said we're going to take this film all over the country we're going to make money and roger may have even said what about bob and al de went who's bob it, yeah. it was that kind of situation well then it turns out while this film was touring around the country a friend of bob's who i think had been a lumberjack who'd gotten injured i remember bob saying he got injured and got messed up in some kind of way had heard that the film was in town and he wanted to go see Bob. This was uh, some other part of the country. I can't remember where it was, but a good ways away from from Yakima. So the guy goes to the event where it's supposed to be a screening of the Patterson-Gimlin film with Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin. Guy goes in. Bob is not there. It's some other guy dressed who looks like Bob. And Bob's friend stood up and said, that's not Bob. And the guy was escorted, thrown out of the building, thrown out of the building
0: by the security. They had a Gimlin imposter. But this little anecdote should tell you what kind of means they were willing to go to to just promote the film. And the way that we heard it is that this wasn't so much Roger's idea to sideline Bob. Seemingly, it was more Al's because he was... That Machiavellian businessman type, where he says, well, what are we are going to do? If the film is a Patterson-Gimlin film, then we got to have a Gimlin. He doesn't mind getting an imposter, which is, you know, for a serious scientific analysis, you don't fake anything. But there are more than a few P.T. Barnum types in this story.
1: Yeah. Al happens to be one of them. And I'd like to add that when it comes to a story that folklore works up around and, and a legend is built up around... You don't know what kind of information this imposter is putting out there on the road that's then working itself into the narrative and finding its way back to the longer-term story or the big-picture story. And then what you've got is a guy who's trying to be a showman to help with ticket sales, making stuff up because he wasn't there. He doesn't know what Bob personally experienced. Right. Now, we're not saying that that made it into the research that we went through to do our research on this story and the books that are written. People have probably taken that into account, but you can't deny that it I'm certain that it muddied the waters at the time. Well, it taints the whole
0: endeavor and experience <laughs> because— you're already starting off presenting this film with a major lie, and as you said, Al probably didn't care, as long as people are buying tickets to whatever. It could be just a, a shot of scenery, and if people are willing to show up, he, he'll sell tickets to that. Roger is really interested in wanting people to believe in the Bigfoot phenomena. And for me, it's really hard to believe that he would go along with having an imposter there. You know, Like I said, it already starts off shady, but now you want us to believe the film. And why do you even need a Gimlin other than I could see him just think, you know, Al Atley thinking like, well, for show business purposes, you gotta, you gotta have something. Anyway, it just doesn't start off on the right foot. And it did
1: taint the whole endeavor, especially if you want science to take this seriously. So as you might imagine, this soured the relationship between Bob and Roger. And to understand the bigger picture of the kind of friends they were, they were friends, but they would go long periods of time without seeing each other. One of the reasons for that is that Bob worked all the time. He had to make money, and he had a family to feed, and Roger wasn't necessarily doing that. Roger was scheming and trying to figure out making little wagons and buying goats and trying to sell that to fairs and doing all kinds of different things, and whenever he needed to, he could borrow money from his rich brother-in-law, so there were points there where Roger would be doing something, and he might say to Bob, can you come to Bob's? No, I can't. I have to work. I have a job. I've got horses to train. I've got cowboying to do. I can't always be there. So they would go a long period of time without seeing each other, and then they came back together for this expedition. They might not have talked for uh, months and months prior to that, or, or even years in some cases, but when they did get back together, this whole thing, they went out and did this shoot, and they got this footage, and then Al D'Atli and Roger took it on the road and squeezed Bob out of the picture. And to be fair, Bob was there. It wouldn't have happened without him. In fact, he wound up rescuing Roger, who had lost his horse and his gun in the situation. And he was entitled to some of the income that that film would have generated. Now, neither Roger nor Bob were particularly wealthy. Al was wealthy, but they weren't. They would have been excited at the prospect of having captured something on film like this that they could make money off of. And Bob would have wanted that income just as much as the next guy. But since he got iced out of the picture by Al D'Atli, that led to a rift between him and Roger and, of course, Al. But more Roger because I get the impression that Bob and Al didn't really know each other all that well. Now we get to this situation where Roger, I think we told you, was ill for a good portion of his life with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it had gone into remission and he was okay for a while. And then it came back just a few years after the Patterson-Gimlin film was shot and when it did, Bob found out that Roger wanted to see him. And to hear Bob tell it, he said, well, you know, I can't hold a grudge against a man. He's on his deathbed and it's water under the bridge and I'm going to go see him. So he went to the hospital to visit Roger on his deathbed. And at that point, Roger apologized to him for the wrongs against him. Like, for example, he and Al D'Atli cutting him out of his one-third share of the profits from the film. And all the trouble that they'd put Bob through. Yeah, it wasn't just the loss of profits or the third of profits that he
0: never saw a dime on. It was all the social stuff, it's bad the ridicule. Treatment. Yeah. yeah, you know, so
1: it wasn't a good thing for him, it turns out. And to that point, Gimlin actually told us personally that he forgave Roger and he understood that it was Al D'Atley who'd put Roger up to all that, and he had probably just gone along with it. Bob seemed to know that Roger wasn't necessarily going to take a stand in that situation. <laughs> And uh, it was a good thing that Bob had gone to see him because just a few hours later, Roger passed away. In fact, Bob was out in the parking lot when he got word, I believe, from one of Roger's siblings that Roger had died. So there you go. And that tells you a little bit about the kind of guy Bob is because he got royally screwed over, honestly, but he went back in the end and he gave Roger a chance to get it right. Now, something I want to point out, and this will come up again, is that What Roger was talking about to Bob just before he died was how he was going to get better and they were going to get some tranquilizer guns and they were going to go out and trank one of these things and bring it in without killing it for everybody to see. I just want people to keep that in mind because that conversation right there for me, when I heard Bob talking about that conversation in Fresno, that said to me that if you believe both of these men are in on a hoax, then that's something that Bob and Roger that conversation they fabricated or Bob fabricated on his own and is going around the world and telling everyone that Roger on his deathbed was planning to go back and tranquilize this creature that doesn't exist. Or it tells you that both Bob and Roger thought they saw something real because Roger on his deathbed is wanting to go back out there and tranquilize it, which is not something you would say if you would hoax the whole thing and put a guy in a monkey suit. However. I've had relatives on their deathbeds. <laughs> and when you're on your deathbed, yeah. you're kind of delirious. Right, so you've got to right. take all that into account. Yeah, yeah. But I thought it was interesting because when Bob relayed that part of the story, he didn't even say anything about, he's not saying, this proves it wasn't a hope. He didn't even say anything. He just said, well, I went and I talked to Roger and he was talking about how he was going to get better. And we were going to go back out and he'd raise some money to buy some tranquilizer guns. And we were going to get back out on the road. And Bob said something to the effect that, I, that you know, well, all right, well, you just get better first. And that was along the lines of their last conversation. So keep that in mind when you're trying to ascertain throughout this series whether or not they hoaxed this film. Now, after Patterson's death, this film distributor, Ron Olson, took over Roger's organization that he had started, the Northwest Research Foundation. And with Roger's widow, Patricia, and his brother-in-law, Al Diatli's blessing, he did this. He renamed it the North American Wildlife Research Association. Olsen continually pitched the film distribution company, American National Enterprises, to make a Bigfoot film, which they finally did and released in 1975, titled Bigfoot, Man or Beast. Olson spent the next few years promoting the film, but ultimately says it lost money. Yeah, he kind of took up the Roger Patterson mantle here, at least with the footage and more of a
0: entertainment film capacity, but he's the one who took the torch from Roger. And I I believe he's, you know, went out and made some Bigfoot traps with some enthusiasts and was also genuinely interested, but took it from the film entertainment side. But they say some of the traps he made are still existing. I, I can't imagine what those would be like. So he took on the role of generating enthusiasm for Bigfoot as a film topic after Roger passed away. But one anecdote I want to share comes from the documentary of Bob Gimlin's life story that we watched. Yeah, we, our, we ordered that actually
1: there. off of his uh, website yeah. and watched it on the way to Fresno Well, I was driving. I only got to listen. <laughs> but Forrest yeah. watched it and my son watched it on the yes, way up to right. Kansas, a three-hour drive from L.A. So. Yeah, there was a story I thought that
0: kind of sums up Bob's character that he tells about when he was a young man and he and his friends were thinking of joining the service because they wanted to contribute, but Bob really wanted to go into the Marines. And his friends, his other buddies, they wanted to go into the Navy. He liked <laughs> but, the uniforms. Yeah, he liked the Marine uniforms. And Bob's more of a land lover, you could say. He's not so much an at-sea kind of guy. But for whatever reason, they thought I think it would be easier duty. So they were all for going into the Navy. But Bob made a proposal, a wager. He said, okay, I'll tell you what. We'll flip a coin And I can't remember if it's heads or tails, but if it's one side, we all join the Navy. If it's the other, we all join the Marines. And they very hesitantly, I think, agreed because they just want to see Bob flip the coin. Well, as it turns out with the coin toss, the Navy won. And so Bob kept his promise. He was not going to welch on the bet. He showed up to the Navy recruiting station and he was the only one there. All of his other buddies chickened out. But this shows you what kind of a guy Bob is. He kept his word and he
1: joined the Navy anyway. Yeah, right. He He could have at that point, he could have said, I'm going to go over to the Marine office. Yeah. But that's the kind of person he is. He gave his word. And even though there was no one there to witness it, he still went through with what he said. And he joined the Navy. A bet is a bet.
0: It's an anecdotal character reference, but it gives you an idea that he is a man of his word. So take it as you will. Hi, I'm Josh Shearer from Better Humanhood, and when I'm not trying to make the world a better place, I am listening with rapt attention to Forrest and Scott. Now, back to Astonishing Legends.
1: So, getting back to the tale of the two Bobs, that's the first Bob, and the biggest Bob in this story, Bob Gimlin. Mm-hmm. There is another Bob. His name <laughs> is Bob Hieronymus, and his story comes up whenever you start to dig even a little into the Patterson-Gimlin film. He's a physically much
0: larger Bob. He's much bigger than Bob Gimlin and also has a major part in the claims that this story was a hoax. He plays a major role because of what he came forward with. Because on January 30th, 1999, this former associate of Roger Patterson's, Bob Peronimus, a Yakima resident, came forward in a press release issued by his lawyer via a story in a Yakima newspaper that he was the man in the ape suit in the Patterson-Gimlin film. Bob Herodimus' claims are detailed, along with various testimonies from his family and associates, in Greg Long's book, The Making of Bigfoot, going back to the time of the incident. And it's an important notation in Greg Long's book that he actually interviewed Bob Hieronymus and got the whole story down. Yes. And that's really the first place that it came through in detail.
1: Yeah, I would say good on Greg Long for getting that interview yeah. with Hieronymus because it's it's not easy to find a good interview with him. I do still feel like Greg was leading the interview a little bit. Yeah, he wanted him to say certain things. He wanted him to say certain <laughs> things, but it, <laughs> right. the fact of the matter is he did document a conversation with Bob Hieronymus about whether or not he wore a suit for the Patterson-Gimlin film. Yes,
0: and the other good thing is that he did go to all of Bob's associates are mostly the ones he can get to, as well as all the other people involved in this story. You know, for example, one of Hieronymus's longtime friends, Russ Bohannon, claims Hieronymus revealed to him his involvement in the hoax privately as far back as 1968 or 69.
1: That's like right after it happened. It went down in 67. So yeah, so the there next are year or the year after and also the year I was born did you have something to do with it yeah uh, <laughs> i was there i remember everything
0: <laughs> well i do remember the the hullabaloo around it but I, I was very young you know my grandfather was a cowboy so it was kind of that connection and plus it's in the state the general area that yes, you're from i'm i'm very familiar with yakaba oh because you live there well you go through there on your way to seattle you're from oh forth. so you're from seattle yeah, one of those. I I went to school there. Everyone knows that. Oh, you went to school in Seattle. The idea though but is you're that not it, from Seattle? No, I'm not. I have friends there, but just the general area. So <laughs> you you kind of know the people and the terrain and and what they're about. And so that's why a lot of these characters are kind of familiar to me character wise, as I'm sure people from the south might be to you that you, yes. you hear about it's like oh yeah that sounds like a guy from north carolina right quit before you insult me <laughs> no i'm just saying everybody's <laughs> regional it's you know what i'm saying it's just like yeah. I, I have a, a good friend uh, she would say yeah that's a new englander you know she was from maine She's like, yep, that's their stoic kind of New England sensibility.
1: You know, so people regionally, they have their own kind of sensibilities. That's all I'm saying. Speaking of the word stoic, it's the first word that comes to mind when I think of what Gimlin is like. Yes.
0: Well, but in a a nice way. Yeah, in a nice way. He's talkative, he's friendly, willing to chat about stuff, but he's just no nonsense. He's the most level-headed guy you'll meet. Well, that's contrasted with Hieronymus, depending on who you believe and who you know, because of Hieronymus's claims. Now, we never met the guy, Bob Hieronymus. But of course his family and friends and greg long all believe him and when he says bob gimlin had involvement with the hoax they're gonna go with that but hieronymus says he never came forward publicly because he was hoping to be paid for his part in the filming of the hoax and that he was afraid that if he did he'd be legally liable for fraud but after his lawyer told him that since he was never paid for the hoax he couldn't be held accountable for fraud he decided to come forward, stating that he was tired after 37 years and he was telling the truth. And he may also have been inspired to come forward after watching the December 28, 1998, airing of a Fox television special, world's greatest hoaxes secrets finally revealed Do
1: you remember that one that's, i don't remember <laughs> that, I it did. sounds like something i would have watched though oh
0: 1998 yeah i was definitely tuned into fox Mystery uh, solved. for uh i was I, I can't even remember if that was around x files but they were doing a lot of shows like that yeah magicians secrets revealed all those types of fun shows so i believe Hieronymus saw that it's like you know what okay that's it i'm telling my story and so it's Greg Long's book is where most all of this claim was first detailed and made public in specific ways, in great and exacting detail. Again, hats off to him for that. But keep in mind that this book is mainly of circumstantial evidence based on interviews with people about Patterson's character and feeling the film was hoaxed. That's the bent of the book. And Bob Hieronymus's confession is also taken as Total truth. Integral. And that confession is where Hieronymus claimed that he was contracted by Patterson to wear an ape suit in the film sequence for $1,000. And Hieronymus did pass a lie detector test about this claim, but so did Roger Patterson. There you
1: go. Can I just tell you how much $1,000 in 1967 would be today adjusted for inflation? Yes, please do. $7,518. So Hieronymus is claiming that Roger Patterson, who had to borrow a good deal of money from Al D'Atli to do pretty much anything, offered him the equivalent of $7,500 to wear a suit for a Bigfoot hoax film. Right. Where you could look at that and contrast it, well, maybe he
0: had the money. To me, it makes more sense that if Roger had a little bit of money, he just would have bought that Kodak K100 16mm camera for $400 and owned it rather than continually rent it because he had a lot of plans for filming, not just one scene with an ape suit. Yeah. So as we'll go through the comparisons here about the stories of Bob Herodimus and those who have come forward to claim the film was a hoax, keep these things in mind. Some of them make sense, some of them less
1: sense. Going back to the lie detector test that Forrest mentioned a second ago, uh, just to get a little more specific about the one that Bob Hieronymus took, it was administered by Jim McCormick, who was a certified polygraph examiner. And uh, there's a quote here about the results for that test in Greg Long's book on page 210 in the chapter called Mac McIntyre. Results of the 75-minute examination showed the man was telling the truth when asked about having worn the Bigfoot suit in the 1967 film. So that's relating to that. It was a legit test, and they said that it was the truth. Now, Roger Patterson, however, also took a test in 1970 that was arranged by an editor for National Wildlife Magazine. And the results from that test appeared in the October-November issue, Volume 8, Number 6, in an article titled, On the Trail of Bigfoot by G.H. Harrison. And in that article, it makes it clear that Roger Patterson passed his test as well. And just keep in mind, anybody, if they're calm enough
0: and believe enough of their story, can pass a lie detector test.
1: Well, if you believe in your own story, and I actually heard there are ways to trick them as well recently, but now they're developing sensors to avoid that. I don't know if I want to get real specific on the tricking method. Oh,
0: it sounds invasive. (laughs) Well, it involves flexing
1: a certain muscle that's normally associated with pooping. I see. Apparently, if you flex that over and over, it can trick a lie detector. I have no idea why, but so now they have yeah. seats that you sit in and they have sensors oh, dear. to determine whether or not you're doing that. Right. But they, of course, don't tell you if the sensor's in there right. so that <laughs> they
0: so can you don't see know. that you're
1: trying the subterfuge yeah, of, of the butt flexing. Right, of course. Anyway, for, yeah. the, you know, well, the, the more way, you know. Yeah, well, the
0: way- <laughs> <laughs> how those work very basically, the old-fashioned lie detectors is that, you know, it, it measures uh, heart rate response, I believe moisture on the skin maybe, you know, all these things when people are lying, they get kind of nervous. And it's not like you're giving a long explanation. Your answers are yes or no. Yeah. So the question the examiner gives you, and in this case, Jim McCormick did contract work for the Yakima Police Department. That's how they they yes. found, uh, found him. And also there was a second test done, which Hieronymus also passed, done by the PAX cable TV show that was airing on uh, May 17th, 2005. And that was administered by ed gelb who was i think a big tv lie detector guy yeah Uh, that show was a big deal they were constantly putting people on lie detectors on that show right well there's a reason it's not admissible in court anymore but it will give you a good idea of maybe who's lying if if they're really nervous because what it does is measures your responses to long questions not front-loaded but basically it's like are you the man uh who wore the suit on october 20th you know, 1967, and you just say yes or no. It's not like, well, I did wear the suit, but only partially for the morning. And, you know, they just want yes or no answers. That's the baseline it establishes because it has to be that simple. Yes. Conversely, if you are really nervous and you're not sure about your answers, but you're telling the truth, you can also fail a lie detector test. And that's why they are not admissible in court. It's not foolproof enough. So you could take this both ways. They both passed a lie detector test. They might both be lying. They might both be telling the truth in some way. So there you go. But people often, you know, point to that. It's like, well, there you go. They passed or they failed. Well, there's also a statement out there that Hieronymus had said something to the effect that he was out to get Patterson back in some way for not paying him for his
1: appearance in the suit. Remember that? That's another thing that Bob Gimlin said. Bob Gimlin said on the stage when we saw him in Fresno, he specifically said, Roger owed him money, and Bob Hieronymus was going to get that money one way or another because that was the kind of guy Bob Hieronymus was. We'll get so it. Yeah. and but then he went on to say, I like Bob. This is the funny thing. These guys yeah. are all talking about each other. You know, they're just like, Well, I mean, he's like that. Well, you know, whatever. but well, he, he wants yeah. that money. It was owed to him. He's gonna do whatever he
0: can to get it. As Scott said earlier, we all know friends we just don't loan money to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or trust. <laughs> I did not make them my emergency contact for a reason, but we're still friends. We'll get together for a beer or hang out. But there are limits.
1: To what I would trust them with yeah, and and, the ways you approach them. And I'm glad you said that because that's what the thing I want people to keep in mind here. There's a humanity to everyone involved Mm -hmm. here. You've got really a cast of characters. There are the pawns and there are the the showmen and the opportunists. And yeah, there's probably some con artists in here. There's some liars. Mm -hmm. But along with all of that, you also somebody, somebody somewhere is telling the truth. Well, uh,
0: or a version of what out they remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's other testimony, and again, that is circumstantial hearsay evidence. You could say to back up Hieronymus's claim, and some of it comes from people very close to him, like his mother Opal, saying that she saw an ape suit in her son's car two days after the filming. Exactly, her car, trunk of her car. Oh, she, she saw it in the car. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, he, he borrowed her he had car. He borrowed
1: her car, which was relatively new, but she, yeah, she went out to the trunk. And she saw the suit in the trunk and apparently was taken aback by it. And then uh, supposedly, I believe either his nephew tried on the hood, yeah. right? There was, there's well, some more information there.
0: John Miller. Uh, also, the hood, the yeah, mask. Yeah, the nephew to Bob Hieronymus also claimed that he did also see the suit in the car. Yes. But that passenger car business is an important aspect of the story here, or the analysis of it later on, so keep that in mind. Uh, Another close friend of Hieronymus, Bernard Hammermeister, claimed Hieronymus had shown him an ape suit in his car, but didn't want him to say anything at the time because he was still waiting on getting paid by Patterson. So it seems this would have been some time after the mother and the nephew saw the ape suit. You can guess if he's waiting a little bit after that. So time is a factor here with Hieronymus's
1: oh, story. And just funny, I just remembered this, something else that Gimlin said in Fresno a few days ago this past weekend, relative to when we we're recording this, was that he was still waiting on getting paid by Roger too for some yeah. stuff. He never got paid either, but he kind of laughed yeah. about that. He was like, you know, that's Roger. I didn't get paid either. No, you know? I know.
0: And And he had a, he had a job that he loved, which was working with horses and didn't pay a king's ransom but he was fine. So he didn't kill him that he didn't get his third share cut. But of course, it would have certainly helped with a lot of expenses. Well, one important aspect in countering the claims of circumstantial evidence put forth by Greg Long in his book could all come down to who you believe, as we said, because Bob Hieronymus states that Bob Gimlin definitely took part in the hoax, while Gimlin firmly and recently denies this and believes that what he saw was a natural animal of some kind. So there you go. You got to pick which Bob you're going to go with. Right. Now, we did wonder, however, this scenario, this is possible, that Roger Patterson did have Bob Hieronymus wear an ape costume that he'd acquired, uh, but at an earlier date and for the purpose of recreating a Sasquatch encounter as part of his docudrama. Since the footage didn't turn out well, maybe Roger gave up on completing the dramatized version of a documentary, and he may have never spoke about it and got rid of the costume, not wanting that fact to bring into question his more serious attempt at a fact-based documentary. So there's a scenario here where they could all be telling a version of the truth, and that's why they passed the lie detector test. But at the same time, there are some very significant inconsistencies with Bob Heronimus's claim, And the circumstances
1: claimed by others. Okay, before we get into this next section of our Scott's voice is messed up. My voice is messed up. I just, well, one of the strangest things that's ever happened in four years is that we've actually gotten ahead. So we're recording these a little bit ahead of time as opposed to the day before it needs to post. Oh, we'll ruin that. But uh, the point is that I've come down with a little bit of a cold. And this is going to be right in the middle of an of episode three, I think. So weirdly, you,
0: in the the two seconds from the last thing you
1: just yeah, heard, yeah, he <laughs> caught a cold, <laughs> caught a cold, and immediately, and instantaneously I lost has a part of my voice. voice. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> sorry about that, but. Nevertheless, I'm feeling pretty good. The show must go on. So it is time for us to talk about the Philip Morris ape suit. And this is a particularly important part of this story because, for a lot of people who have only scratched the surface on it, when they heard the details of this story, they were like, oh, well, that explains it. Mystery solved. It was a costume. We want to go into more depth on all the background there because, as is the case with everything about this story and Astonishing Legends in general, There's always much more to it than just that soundbite or that one sentence that you take away when you hear about it.
0: Well, I'll say this now because there (laughs) will be a few, I'm sure, people who have dropped out by now, like, yeah, you know, I'm not getting all this and I'm certainly not sticking around for the rest of this. Well, we were talking with Rich Haddam and Rob Christofferson in our Twitter group there. And, you know, Rich had a good comment. He was like, wait, what, what have you guys found out? What do you think now about this? And he was a little bit blown away because it's of the implications of what we found out now and how that changed since when you first heard about this film, or maybe you never have, maybe you've never seen it. You need to go take a look at it and look at it a bunch of times. And then it starts to sink in. But when we were kids watching this stuff, like just exactly what Scott said, you'd see the film like, wow, that's pretty weird. I wonder if they're real. Oh, I don't know. It looks pretty real. And then you hear something about like, oh, no, you know, a guy came out and he said he wore the costume. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's probably the case. You know, it can't be real.
1: Right. And that comes back to Bob Hieronymus, who we just talked about.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then you hear another story a few years later. It's like, oh, well, there you go. Guy claims that he sold the suit to Roger Patterson. Well, there you go. It's a suit. I knew it. And then you kind of forget about it. Even if you thought, like, maybe it's like, well, no, this looks like a really good suit. I wonder if it's the same thing. I wonder if we'll see a picture of that suit. But you put it to the side. But then what happened to us is that you take a deeper dive, a a deeper look at this, and these facts become refreshed in your mind. And It's like, wait, wait a second. Maybe there's something really significant about this and mind-blowing, and it's been there all along. We just never bothered to look that closely into it. The main conflicting aspect of the scenarios we just talked about, Bob Hieronymus maybe wearing a suit for another film project. That Roger Patterson was going to do. And we're not saying that he had in mind a docudrama all along, that either parts of it were going to be faked or that it was all going to be dramatized. But as we've seen before, a lot of times nowadays, the most serious documentaries have dramatized bits in it because they have to hold your attention and provide production value. Can't be just a talking head. So I think that was the idea with Roger. If there was going to be any bit of dramatization at all, just to dramatize the parts of these anecdotal stories he'd heard, that was the first idea, perhaps, for his story.
1: Right. And the claim of him shooting a docudrama, a lot of that is speculative. Some of it is based on two interviews from Greg Long's book, one with a rockabilly musician who was a childhood friend of Roger Patterson's named Jerry Lee Merritt. Right, And another gentleman whose name was Ballard. And they just said, well, he was working on this docudrama. There was also the information that Bob was going to wear a wig, Gimlin, and play a tracker. And so there was this idea that he was doing reenactments. And to your point, Forrest, reenactments, and and this is what everyone should remember, if they're doing Bigfoot research and they're trying to make documentaries and, and also theoretically doing that to raise more money for more expeditions to find any evidence of Bigfoot, then... The reenactment, the idea of the reenactment, that's what you do to entertain. That's what every single episode of Unsolved Mysteries is. It's a reenactment. <laughs> they weren't there when it happened. That's true. They were well, we Well, maybe the
0: dramas one where they drink from his skull, but yeah. I was hoping that was the case with the kid. Like, well, how'd they get the camera there?
1: That's how you do that. So that's just something to consider. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything you film for the rest of your life is a reenactment. So yeah. that's just something that we we wanted to point out and in coming back around to the idea that the whole concept of the docudrama is a little bit hearsay and loosely based on testimony of people. But it's not something that we've ever heard directly from Roger Patterson.
0: We did ask Bob Gimlin about that, if he was approached to do that. And uh, we'll have to dig through the transcripts from the interview. So at the moment, we may get to that later. I'll remember to do that. But right now, at this particular moment off the cuff, I can't remember what his answer was. But that was the idea, is that he was going to play a character of the wise Apache tracker or Native American tracker that was part of the group. Remember that the idea for the first film project for Roger was going to be a group of cowboys that were hunting Bigfoot with this old prospector and this wise Indian tracker going to be played by Bob wearing a wig and that they were going to, in flashback, tell the stories of these Bigfoot encounters by these old timers, and one of them being Fred Beck and the Ape Canyon incident. So that was the first idea. But as we all know, especially with people who make films, you start off with with one idea and it's like, well, that's not panning out. Let's switch to something else. So we're not saying that that was the film idea all along. That was just maybe one idea that he started with. And maybe Bob Hieronymus was misremembering that instance was something else about wearing a, a Bigfoot costume and crossing his wires, so to speak, with his memory. And that's why he seemed to be telling the truth. But it was for a different incident. Or maybe he was... Outright, using those bits of information that he knew about Roger and his filming to kind of muddy the waters, shall we say, because he had a grudge. As I went through this next section of research, I'm beginning to think less that he maybe misremembered something because there are some glaring, kind of contradictory elements here. Because the main conflicting aspect of these scenarios that we just talked about is, you know, aside from the interview testimony, of those that either had a bad financial association with Patterson or the claims from Bob Hieronymus and the corroboration from those close to Hieronymus and the people that believe him. The critical claims put forth by Greg Long and others centers around the ape costume that Hieronymus claims was given to him by Patterson to wear. Now, costume maker Philip Morris of the Philip Morris Costume Company, that was his company, he ran it with his wife. She helped make the costumes and I think run the business with him. Claims to have been the company that sold the suit in the film to Patterson. However, we're going to now look at the similarities and discrepancies between these two claims.
1: In August of 2002, on the 16th, Philip Morris, the owner of the company that Forrest just mentioned, went on a radio station, WBTAM, in Charlotte, North Carolina, part of my neck of the woods there to claim that it was his company's gorilla costume that was used in the Patterson-Gimlin film. Yeah,
0: Morris costumes in
1: Charlotte, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right. This company's still around, by the way. Mr. Morris has passed away, but his wife is still alive and mm-hmm. his son is still operating the company. It's our understanding.
0: Yeah, they do props and other kind of stage items you could rent or buy. I, I don't know if you read, but you could buy them to do things like magic shows or themed parties. They, it's a lot of fun stuff. They, I guess it's a little like Party City, but they really were expert with costumes. and Yeah, great and it's, costumes.
1: Not, it's not a provincial operation. They were well-known countrywide. So it's right. not just like a small little podunk costume place in North Carolina. Charlotte at the time, I don't know if it still is, but it was the largest city in the state. And Philip Morris Costumes was known for providing good quality costumes. Oh yeah,
0: good, good enough that they were used by magicians To pull a stage gag, but ones that didn't look ridiculous. They were well-made. Right. And well-tailored and not cheap, but not to... Well, he claims his prices were
1: competitive. So anyway,
0: just not cheap stuff you buy at the dollar store. These were really expertly tailored costumes.
1: Yes. Now, Morris's claim that he made on the radio also appeared in the Charlotte Observer newspaper. Now... As stated in Greg Long's book that we keep referring to, Morris claimed that he had talked about his gorilla costume being used for the hoax at events like, this is in quotes, costume conventions, lectures, and magic conventions, in quotes. I guess early cosplay type gatherings, but he previously (laughs) didn't want to come forward publicly because of the magician's code. Often his gorilla costumes were used in a quick change magic act where a woman, the magician's assistant, was changed into a gorilla and exposing any act secret would violate the code and be considered bad form, possibly hurting his business. So yeah, you, that, you just don't do that. No, it's a big hang up yeah. for him. And oh, sure. he, was, he said, when I realized that Roger Patterson had bought this costume from us, I'm not going to out him. He's getting a lot of mileage yeah. out of what he's done. And for him, that's like telling a magician secrets, and if he did that, his name would be Mud.
0: Well, other magicians would be going to his competitors. Yeah, exactly. Once they heard that.
1: Now, Morris claimed that Patterson had bought the gorilla costume from him in 1967 via mail order, saying it was going to be used in a prank. After Patterson received it, Morris claims he called him later to ask how he could make the arms on the suit longer and the shoulders appear to be more massive. Morris said he advised Patterson that whoever was wearing the suit should hold sticks in their hands and wear football shoulder pads. Mm -hmm. The Yakima Herald reported that on October 6, 2004, it appeared that National Geographic had sponsored the production of a recreation of the Patterson-Gimlin film clip using a suit that Philip Morris had provided. A video was shot at a campground called Cow Camp at Rimrock Lake, a little over 40 miles west of Yakima. Now, Morris ended up not giving his permission to National Geographic to use the video with his suit, saying that since October was his busy season, naturally, he didn't have enough time to prepare a decent costume. However, Morris never provided another suit he thought was more suitable. Mm. And National Geographic's project producer said the suit was in no way similar to what was seen in the Patterson-Gimlin film. So that's an important point. This film was made, but it was so far off the mark. Morris didn't want anybody to see it. And here's something I want to make clear. We actually reached out to the Philip Morris company and exchanged emails with his son, Scott. And Scott had said that he was going to come on and possibly come on with his mother who sewed this costume in question. And we were supposed to hear from them. We've exchanged several emails and they just have not gotten back to us. So we didn't get an opportunity to talk to them. Of course, we would have looked forward to that. But we we got Ronnie'd. We got Ronnie'd. Yeah, that's what we say. People have to go way back to know what that means. That's a (laughs) reference to the Delphus ring. Delphus ring. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Amy Morris, uh, Philip Morris's wife, who is still alive, stood by her husband's claim and has said that she helped make the Patterson Gimlin film ape costume. However, they haven't yet provided any suit, they said was the same or similar as the one in the film, nor provided any documentation about a suit of theirs that could have been made in 1967. So this is what's interesting about that. At one point, I'd heard some talk in some of our research about a receipt. We've not seen a receipt. We've seen no photograph of a costume that looks similar. And the only time that the supposedly similar costume was filmed doing something, it was deemed not good enough to be shared with the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, well, essentially, there's no suit to compare it to, ever. Never. There's never been a suit provided where it was, this is the suit, we sold Roger. Well, these weren't custom made, tailored to each individual buyer and their measurements. And I don't want to say that they were mass produced, but it's not like these were all individual suits. So they should have been able to provide the same or similar suit for people to see that, that they claim was sold to Roger because they were selling to other magicians, not just Roger. So that's never happened. And I said this before, I think earlier, I can't even remember what I've said now. It's been, we've been talking so much about this, but it's like the bet sphere when you say like, oh yeah, yeah. Our company manufactures steel balls, stainless steel balls, just like that. That's what it is. It's for a giant ball valve ball. And that's it. Well, that's fine. Let's see it. And no one's ever done that. It's like, well, okay. So let people measure that. Is it exactly the same? Because I can't buy into that any more than it's Bigfoot. You claimed it's out in the woods. You took some footage because it's also hearsay. It's like, all right, that's fine. Well, let's see the suit then. Let's see the steel ball. In those two cases, that's not happened. But a lot of people will hang up the controversy just on that hook and leave it, leave it alone. There you go. He said it was his. You're also relying on hearsay when you hear people talk about their relationship with Roger Patterson. Some things may be in the paper as far as him getting sued by 21 different people in town or how they felt about him. But in a sense, it's, it's hearsay. So let's get back to the actual items. Produce the items. So in any case, that is one problem with the Philip Morris claim.
1: Hi, I'm Sarai Sosi, winner of last year's Astonishing Madness 2018 bracket. I just want to wish everybody good luck. Now back to the show.
0: So now let's look at the comparison between these two stories, these two somewhat lined up, but also conflicting stories. Greg Long is convinced that the gorilla or ape costume that Hieronymus claims Patterson gave to him to wear for the film is the same one that he purchased from the Morris Costumes Company, but there are some significant discrepancies in the descriptions that Long provides. Three of the most major differences are, one is the suit's construction. The Philip Morris costume is a one-piece with a metal zipper down the back. Hieronymus described the costume he wore as being a two-piece for the body and with a separate headpiece. So like with pants that he thought were held up with a drawstring to keep them up and a separate top that he put on like a t-shirt. That's how he described it. He also didn't remember there being any metal used in the suit, like a zipper. The Morris costume, on the other hand, had hands and feet that were separate pull-on pieces and Hieronymus described a suit that had the hands and feet already attached. Patterson would have had to attach the hands and feet somehow before Hieronymus put the suit on And he never mentioned that Patterson had measured him specifically for the suit
1: before he put it on and walked around being filmed. Now, the most obvious discrepancy would be in the appearance as there's a vast difference in the material both suits were described as being made from. Now, Philip Morris from the costume company in Charlotte, North Carolina, had said that the suit that he sold Patterson was their, quote, standard suit that we sold to all our customers, end quote, costing four hundred and thirty five dollars. Now, four hundred and thirty five dollars. In 1967 dollars, uh, adjusted for inflation to today, that would be $3,321. Wow. It's a very expensive costume. Yeah. But less expensive than what his competitors offered. And maybe more, it seems, than what Patterson could afford, especially with all of the things that we read about Patterson in Greg Long's book and other places where people are casting aspersions on his character. And certainly more than Patterson would have been willing to spend.
0: Yeah, it seems to us anyway, but that's three three grand. Yeah. Yeah, because think about this is that he rented that camera. He could have bought the camera and a bunch of film and, you know, that's a little... Doesn't make sense. It's a bumping point.
1: yeah. Yeah. So this might make you wonder if Roger would have just tried to make a suit himself. On the other hand, the Morris costume was made from Dynell, which is a trade name for a lightweight, flame-resistant acrylic resin synthetic fiber originally made by Union Carbide. Oh, the battery people. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, they got in trouble about uh, yes, the inv- environmental pollution situation in India some time ago. Anyway, since it's easily dyed, it's also used to make wigs. It also has little or no smell to it. But Hieronymus said that Patterson had, quote, skinned out a dead red horse, end quote, to make the ape suit and that it stunk, stating that his brother Howard had also told him that Patterson said he made the ape costume from a horse hide. Hieronymus also said that since it was made from horse hide, the suit was heavy, like maybe 20, 25 pounds. The reported colors for each suit were also differently described. Hieronymus's brother Howard had described the horsehide as a real dark brown, although Hieronymus described it as red, meaning a reddish brown, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's what I took it to be.
1: And Long said Morris was using brown dinel in 1967. Long also said he wouldn't have wanted to use a real dark brown color because a lighter brown would have shown up better against the black background when doing the girl changing into a gorilla magic trick the suit was primarily used for at the time. Mm, It's a little self-contradictory, the description. there's a lot of contradictions. Yeah, I know, right. So so Greg Long speculates in his book, The Making of Bigfoot, that we've referenced many times now. And will continue to do so. And will continue to do so. That Patterson modified the Morris suit that Hieronymus wore. But he wrote nothing about altering the main part of the suit itself, like making it a two-piece, dyeing the hair darker, or adding a horsehair portion, only that he probably changed the face mask and glued or riveted the hands and feet to the costume. There's no evidence or any testimony that Patterson changed anything about the suit, let alone adding breasts to it. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, that's a couple of big big ones. Yes, Skeptics of the film say that although Bob Hieronymus was not as tall as Patty, by some estimates up to 14 inches shorter, his arms are much shorter, and he was not nearly as bulky. All of that could be made up for with padding or bulk in a suit. Yeah, that's what the skeptics would say, sure. Yeah. Morris suggested padding, and Hieronymus said he did wear padding with the suit. When Hieronymus was interviewed the second time by Rob McConnell on August 6th of 2007 for his radio show X-Zone, McConnell asked, quote, did you have to have stuffing inside? Bob Hieronymus answered, quote, oh, Yes. There was football helmets, pads, and an old football helmet for the head, and the legs had rubber boots in the legs for the big calves and padding in the rear end there, end quote. What Hieronymus said he didn't use were sticks to extend the length of his arms, just that he wore, quote, gloves a little bit longer than my actual hands were, end quote. Nor did he say there was padding in the solid torso of the suit. So football shoulder pads, yes, and Patterson did play high school football as well as being a gymnast and overall good athlete. Philip Morris commented about the movement of a human in one of his costumes, saying that because of the shoulder pads partially blocking the movement of the jaw, the wearer has to turn their head along with their shoulders and hips together, since you can only turn your head a quarter of the way to the side. And that's why the Bigfoot turns and looks the way he does in the film. He has to twist his entire upper body.
0: Yeah, it was his explanation, yeah, of the famous 352 or 354 frame where Patty
1: twists her upper torso to look at the camera. Yeah, but when we look at the PGF with Patty turning her head, we notice the head turning first, then the shoulders and torso next, and it all looks smooth and compact with no bunching of padding or wrinkles in the fabric like you would expect with a suit. We're going to go into much greater detail on that Mm -hmm. in part four of this series. Mm -hmm. Morris goes on to explain that with clown shoes, you have to put your foot down flat. Otherwise, you're stumble and you can't put the ball of your foot down first. So that explains Patty's flat footed walk. But again. There has been no suit of any kind provided for comparison. And Chris Murphy, in the book that when he re-released Roger Patterson's book, yes, the Bigfoot film controversy, the Bigfoot film controversy, where he added eighty additional pages to it, Murphy asked Philip Morris for permission to include a photo of the gorilla suit he claims that he sold to Roger Patterson. But, and we're quoting here, Morris flatly denied permission and copied his attorney in the reply. Mm. End quote. Mm-hmm. Murphy suggests that Greg Long would have most likely provided images of the suit in his book if there were any substance to Philip Morris's claim of selling that suit to Roger Patterson. And what's the big deal? There's a lot of talk around it. And this is the thing that I think you have to remember and is important is that Philip Morris was a brilliant businessman. He was very good at running that company and it's a well-respected company to this day. It makes sense for that company To want the world to believe that that amazing looking footage depicts one of his costumes. That is good for business. That's just something to think about regardless of the truth of whether or not they provided a costume costume. For the Patterson-Gimlin film, if you can say, hey, look, that's one of ours. Here's our phone number. We're in Charlotte. Give us a call. (laughs) It's It's fooled a bunch of
0: scientists. Yeah, Yeah. just something
1: to keep in mind. And it's especially something to keep in mind when it comes down to being unable to produce a photograph of it when having it filmed, but the film does not look good enough to share with anyone, Mm -hmm. unable to produce any copies of it, and not only that, copying your lawyer on correspondence related to it. It's just, it's yeah. interesting.
0: Yeah, keep it all in mind. That's keep a, it all that's in mind. That's what I say. Well, speaking of Chris Murphy, he, of course, in his book had rebuttals to the claims of both Philip Morris and Bob Hieronymus, which you've just heard conflict a lot. So just in summation, I thought some of these were interesting, and this is being summarized from Chris Murphy's section of the book, The Bigfoot Film Controversy, or Controversy, if you're English. One, if Bob Hieronymus had actually traveled to the film site, he would have surely remembered that it was about 20 miles of twisting rough dirt road filled with potholes going in from the highway, not the four or five miles going in, which Hieronymus claims he took a passenger car over, which would have been difficult not to get stuck. So that's one thing. He he just claimed that it it was like four or five miles from the road. Yeah, it was a lot longer, it seems. In Chris Murphy's book, the Bigfoot film controversy, there's a section where he analyzes and compares the physical dimensions of Bob Hieronymus with Patty. It's kind of interesting because Murphy uses a tracing from a photograph of Hieronymus taken by Pat Long, Greg Long's wife, and it appears on page 361 of Long's book. So apparently he wouldn't give Murphy permission to use the actual photo that we're looking at right here of just it's Bob taking a stride with, I think he's got like a a letterman's jacket on or or something with the different sleeves and a ball cap. And he's doing a recreation of his panty stride, but he wouldn't give him permission to use it. So Murphy has a tracing done and the tracing compares the size dimensions to frame 310 of the PGF. And Murphy lines up Bob demonstrating his panty walk in the same pose and makes the figures the same height in order to compare limb length. So what he's done is that he's taken that photo of Bob where the, the tracing of that where Bob is most similarly in the same position as Patty is in frame 310. So when you line them up at the same height, the most noticeable discrepancies are that Bob's right arm is too short
1: and his knee-to-ground length is longer than Patty's. That's interesting. It's pretty long, actually. I mean, yeah. you look at the picture. Also, the title of the picture. I think it's interesting that Greg wouldn't give Murphy permission to use the picture. Yeah, I think there's some bad blood there. Well, I think <laughs> just, there's bad know, blood. Yeah. And there's. Oh, I think Greg also wants people to buy his book, sure. uh, you know, and that makes sense. But obviously, at this point, I'm just, I'm wearing my confirmation bias on my shoulder <laughs> uh, because I'm, I'm leaning yeah. towards believing that the film is real. I've already, I've already admitted that. Oh, I guess you did. So I'm acknowledging that. And we are, when we talk about Greg Long, he's a non-believer. We talk about Chris Murphy. He's a believer. We're going back and forth, looking at everybody's work. And I'm, I know that we're showing favor to people that are aligned with my personal viewpoint. Mm -hmm. I just want to make it clear. I'm aware of that. But as one of the things I want to point out about people that are aligned the other way, like this caption under that picture that you just mentioned Mm -hmm. on page 361 of Long's book. Bob Hieronymus demonstrating how he walked in Roger Patterson's Bigfoot film. His walk bears an uncanny resemblance to Patterson's Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that walking like that is not hard. (laughs) I can do it right now. I've done it in the backyard here. So just to say that it's like in Ghostbusters and no human being could have stacked books like this. (laughs) Yeah. People can walk like that. What you can't fake is the mechanics of a body. You cannot fake where your hinges are, where your knees are, where your elbows are and where your shoulders are and the relationship between those components.
0: Well, trust me, we're going to get into all of that into excruciating detail, (laughs) Uh, but just because it proves a point and that what Greg Long just said, yes. That's an opinion. Yeah. So that's just by looking at it, too. That's not an opinion from a primatologist or anatomist. It's, you know, a guy who wrote a pretty good book on some interviews about Roger Patterson and the PGF. Well, there's other differences here that are summarized. And one of them is that the hands are different. If Bob had arm extensions as some claim, which Bob himself denied, then the hands wouldn't be able to open and close. You can see that on the film. Unless you're suggesting Roger made highly sophisticated robot hands, which I'm not doing here. But Patty's hands, as we said, they partly open and close as she walks. Bob's knee to ground length is longer than Patty's. Now, you can make someone's leg longer physically, but you can't make them shorter unless you alter the image. And the image has not been altered here. His knee to the bottom of his shoe is longer than the massive Patty. Right. So that's a weird morphology there between the two
1: creatures, which would be nearly impossible to fake physically. You cannot move where your knee is. I don't <laughs> right. care what yeah. kind of costume you put on. Your knee is going to be in the same place. And if you don't believe that, look at a stilt walker in a parade.
0: Well, here's what happens when you make the two figures the same height. So you, don't, you know what I'm saying now is now you've enlarged the sketch to the size of Patty in the frame. And if you enlarge Patty's image so that her knee... ground length is the same as Hieronymus's, then her overall height and mass greatly increases in image size. She's much
1: taller and bulkier. Right. What you're doing here when you're matching them up, that addresses the question of people say, oh, well, we don't know what kind of camera it was, the focal length, how far, the lens, whatever. You might not know that, but no matter what happens, if when you're doing an enlargement, you're not doing any sort of distortion to the enlargement, which is obviously not what these people are doing in Photoshop or whatever, you have the option of enlarging and keeping the aspect ratio locked so that your height and width stay the same as opposed Mm -hmm. to a distortion where you might just take somebody and stretch them vertically like a funhouse mirror. We're not doing that. So when you do make the enlargement to make these two the same size, Mm -hmm. as Forrest just said, The relationship or the ratio between the elbows and knees and arm length and shoulders and feet and where everything are, that stays consistent as well. And if you can't make that match up with Bob Hieronymus, it doesn't match. Exactly. So making the knees to the ground the same distance image size
0: for both characters, Bob and Patty... Makes Patty huge. Huge. Yeah.
1: So, well, there you go. Bigger than Bob. (laughs) Yeah, frankly.
0: Right. So there's a few other things that Murphy notices. One is when Patty turns her head and shoulders in frame 352, her right cheek puffs out Mm. like she's had the fatty jowls of an old person, which I'm beginning to sympathize with. Uh, (laughs) If it was a mask, then it would have also had to have been a loose, like pliable skin like covering. Fitting over the old football helmet he said he wore. Now, I'm guessing he was talking about, you know, those old leather helmets. Yeah. It couldn't have been like one of the the newer plastic style. No, yeah. It's ridiculous. But maybe one of those old leather, more form-fitting helmets, that's what I would be guessing he was talking about. Hieronymus had lost his right eye in his youth, and he said that he brought a spare prosthetic glass eye to use with a headpiece because he thought it would look more realistic because the eye holes to him would just appear, you know, as dark holes. In the suit. So he's trying to help out the suit here. So he said he gave the spare eye to Patterson to use at the last moment,
1: which he stuck in the right eye socket with a wad of clay. And once, Patterson the important point about this, this is detailed in Long's book, is that Hieronymus was actually really reluctant to share this. He wanted to keep it to himself. And this is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. He claimed he wanted to keep it to himself because it was like that inside thing that he knew that if he saw the suit mm-hmm. or he found this suit, that he would know it was the right suit Because of this eye being stuck in the eye socket. And he didn't want to tell Long about the eye. Interesting. But Long got it out of him. And of course, even though Bob had wanted to keep it a secret, Long went right ahead and published it in his book. Oh, well, there you go. So
0: now it's out. Yes. Uh, but there's a couple of weird things about that story. Well, you can see what appears to be an eyeball in the right eye corner as Patty does turn her head towards the camera. It's kind of creepy, actually. Yeah. You can see what appears to be a little
1: bit of white Looks of like an eye. eye shine, almost.
0: Yeah, a little bit something. There's some sunlight glinting off of it. The left eye would be still obscured in partial shadow. And Murphy states that it would be hard to believe that Patterson stuck an eyeball in at the last minute, and that it looks that good in the suit, not just wadded, <laughs> bulging wadded eye in there. Also, you know, most prosthetic eyes, as late as 1999, only look straight ahead. I've noticed some other ones, I didn't do any research on this just too much, but the newer ones kind of anchor to the eye muscles so that when you turn the eye that's not missing, the other one will kind of follow. So it mm-hmm. looks more natural. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, they're really expensive and I'm not sure. And neither is Chris Murphy that Hieronymus would have given him one just to use. I mean, I, <laughs>
1: yeah. And leave it permanently in the suit.
0: Well, a good friend of mine, uh, used to lifeguard at a water slide park and they would find weird things in the drain. And that was one thing he had to go look for.
1: Well, uh, because, oh,
0: no, because they were so expensive. You're not just going to say, yeah, I'll just, you know, it's not a pair of sunglasses. You got
1: it at Rite Aid. You're going to go look for it again. Yeah. There are thousands of dollars. I know you and I are in different spots on this, Mm -hmm. and I I guess we can talk about it more Mm -hmm. in our conclusions. But to me, the fact that Bob Hieronymus has that whole story about the eye and being in the eye socket, that is an odd detail to me to make up. And that lends itself to me, to Bob Hieronymus, believing his story. And that leads to two other forks in the road. One is that he's told it so many times and embellished it so many times that he started to believe it, which is a known phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Another one is, is that it's true. And there was a costume. Yeah. I don't believe personally that that costume is what we're seeing in the PGF, but that one fact that he talks about, it took my eye out. We put it in, popped it in with clay to make it look blah, 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 because there was a, it does for me, it's a little bit like maybe there was at some point another costume that Roger, like we said earlier, was using to do a reenactment or had planned to try and shoot for something and it didn't work out and he wound up not using it or not ever running it and then got rid of the costume or whatever. There is some philosophy along there. However, on that point, again, Mm. it doesn't make sense to me that he would buy a $435 costume from Philip Morris and then quote unquote, get rid of it. I just wanted to be the devil's advocate in the, in the bigger picture here. Right. I do find that eyeball detail or the prosthetic eye detail convincing of Bob's story. I do not buy Bob's walk And I agree with you about the anatomy. So this is a a conflicting issue for me, the Hieronymus story. But for me, it is unrelated to the film because I can see no connection between the film and them. because the shine of the eye in the PGF film, there's nothing about that that says, hey, this is a prosthetic eye that was popped into a mask. It's just an eye shine.
0: No, it's it's beyond the film resolution's credibility level, as Murphy says. So it's like, you know what? You can't determine one way or the other. It's just, hey, look, there's a whole string of ingenious little add-ons, I say, to this thing, if it was a real suit. The breasts for one, then it would be the eye, the choice of a weird looking foot, you know, and maybe that was patterned after the Bluff Creek sightings of from fifty eight where they look, just look like that. Just a weird choice. There's a lot of odd choices, just enough to confound people, and that would be the ingenious part if it was a hoax. But there's other things about it. Uh, Patty's mouth appears to be partially open in some frames and shut in others. As some have noted that the teeth can be seen, and Murphy thinks that maybe even a tongue, like a pink tongue. Patterson and Gimlin noted facial expressions when they saw Patty in real life, as they claim, denoting emotion. And Murphy senses to him some expressions here that denote emotions, one being complacency, also awareness of something disturbing, then concern and fear. And facial expressions would be hard to pull off with a mask. Another thing that's interesting that you can see pretty clearly, a tendon or hamstring, I guess you would call it, appears in frame 72 on the back of the leg and down the right side of the leg in frame 352, along with a bulging calf muscle. That one's pretty clear to me. I know you had some problem noticing the uh, the calf muscle, but to me, that looks pretty No,
1: I, I agree with you about oh, okay. the calf muscle. Okay. Yeah. Hieronymus said that
0: he wore his own clothes under the costume, but it's reasonable to think that the costume would have to be skin tight to show any kind of muscle detail, and not under two layers of fabric, one with hair, unless, again, Patterson expertly crafted in all the right anatomically correct muscles in the right place in a really
1: intricate and complicated suit. Yeah, now, and to be clear, Hieronymus was fit. He was very fit. There's yeah, a picture he, of him standing in front of a Corvette. He he looks amazing. He's kind yeah. of a bodybuilder. However, the idea that he's wearing probably blue jeans would be, you know, what he might have worn if he was wearing clothes under the costumes. Wearing blue jeans and then wearing this costume and then you see the calf muscle mm-hmm. that you see in the PGF is a leap for sure.
0: Well, there's other things. Uh, the heel, seen in frame 72, is natural looking in appearance and Murphy notes, that the sole of the foot appears buried in the soil, he estimates about one inch deep. Murphy and others had visited the site themselves and noted the depressions average-weighted men made with their shoes. Bob Hieronymus says that his current weight at that time, at least of Murphy's publishing, was 219 pounds. Add the approximate weight of the costume, that was around 25 pounds, and what you get is like 244 pounds. He doesn't appear to be heavy enough to make that deep of an impression as Patty did.
1: There's a wake-up call.
0: Yeah. There also appears to be a lump, I saw this too in the film, that comes and goes as Patty's right leg is walking. And some believe this could be a hernia like athletes get. There does seem to be a lump. I didn't notice it at first. I took another look. It seems to be there. On Patty's midsection, the flesh or fat underneath is seen to ripple or fold outward as she walks and is more apparent in her waist area because the hair is thinner there. Bob Gimlin told us he also
1: noticed areas where more skin could be seen as the hair was lighter or more sparse. Worn down from friction, again, unless it's a costume that somebody's wearing every day over and over and lots of people are wearing, the idea of fur being worn down from friction of bodily movement seems unlikely.
0: Yeah, I also uh, asked Bob himself about this. You've had a cat before, people that have owned uh, uh, dark-colored cats. The patches above their eyes, sometimes you can see the skin Mm -hmm. better, uh, and it looks like lighter patches, above the cat's eyes, even with a dark-haired cat. Dark-furred cat. And that's what I kind of pictured it on the sides. That's what he's talking about, is the skin kind of appears to be lighter and not under such dark fur. So also something that would be hard to pull off if... Hieronymus wore his clothes underneath the suit. In frame 61, you can clearly see the sole of Patty's right foot, toes included. Researchers who visited the site took castings, and Murphy says it's been confirmed that the right foot seen in the frame matches one of the castings they took. So pair that up. Hieronymus said that he didn't make the footprints and took the costume with him when he left the site. So you could argue that Patterson and Gimlin had separate foot forms or that they would have had to use the costume's feet to plant the prints after he left,
1: But Hieronymus doesn't mention leaving the feet. Not just use the costume's feet, but use the costume's feet and be able to put probably 200 or more pounds of pressure on each one if someone of that size and weight couldn't make the same impression. Yeah. Now, it's split on to two legs, but we're talking about keeping the feet and making the impressions with the feet. Otherwise, you're talking about the uncanny coincidence of the footprint exactly matching the costume.
0: What's up, my fellow humans and others? I'm Sean Nelson, and this is Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. Well, here's something that I was not aware of until we went to go see Bob Gimlin speak. And Scott and I heard this one there, and I, I don't know, I was a little bit shocked about this. I'd not heard this. It's a bit of hearsay.
1: But then again, a lot of Greg Long's book is hearsay. Well, when when Bob Gimlin got asked when we saw him in Fresno about Bob Hieronymus, one of the things that Gimlin said that I thought was, you know, that you and I both kind of looked at each other and went, "Uh uh-huh, about was Bob's whole costume claim, Hieronymus's costume claim. I'm sorry, it's two Bobs. I know it's kind of confusing. Bob Gimlin is the man that was there when the film was shot. Bob Hieronymus is the man who said that he wore a costume. And Philip Morris is the one who said he sold a costume to Roger Patterson. There is no known connection between Bob Hieronymus and Philip Morris directly, just for the record. But what the thing was that was interesting was that when Bob Gimlin was asked about Bob Hieronymus at the talk that we saw him at, he said, well, you know, Roger owed Bob, and I'm paraphrasing here, Roger owed Bob Hieronymus money. Mm -hmm. I've got nothing against Bob, known him a long time, but I know that Bob was going to get that money one way or the other.
0: That was a quote that he'd heard, apparently, because somebody in the audience specifically asked Bob Gimlin... If that statement was true, that Bob Hieronymus had claimed that he was going to get Roger Patterson back for that, for not getting
1: paid, and essentially Bob Gimlin confirmed that. Right. So there's an implication here, and again, as Forrest said, it's hearsay, but there's an implication that there's a a little bit of a a small vendetta over some cash, essentially. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways to do something about that is to assault the claims of the film. And I was in a costume, I wore a costume. And so there you have it. So that's that's one of the behind-the-scenes aspects of the Hieronymus-Gimlin-Patterson relationship. Now, people that believe that this whole thing was a hoax usually cite their opinion of Roger Patterson having a low moral character and therefore a propensity to commit a hoax in the first place. He's flaky, his motivation is fame and money, especially since he was terminally ill, and his craftsman skill set granting him the ability to accomplish creating a decent ape costume because he did build things and he also made saddles. But adding to this argument, Greg Long claims he discovered some circumstantial evidence that Patterson had faked some Bigfoot tracks in the Yakima area and maybe even had faked some photos and made false reports of sightings. And for Long, this leads him to a conclusion that Patterson hoaxed the PGF as well. I want to read to you a passage from Long's book right here. This conversation actually takes place between Harvey Anderson And Roger Patterson, according to Harvey Anderson, who Greg actually spoke to. Anderson owned a small store in Yakima. Mm -hmm. So he said that Roger came in and talked to him about this. And so I'm going to listen to this. I'm going to take just some of this here. So it's a little out of context. You have to get Greg Long's book if you want to uh, read more of the surrounding text here. This is from page 390 of his book. Anderson remembered Patterson walking up to the counter. He said, I have something private I want to show you so that I can figure out if I can make this film correct." I said, sure. He says, well, can we go into the back room? So I took him into the back of the shop where we serviced and repaired guns. It was a gun shop that Anderson had. And he laid the package on a workbench and took the string off and unfolded the newspaper. And he had a white cast of what appeared to be something like a foot. He says, what do you think of that? I said, well, what is it? He said, well, it's from a walking man I found in the Autonom area. And I said, is that right? I didn't think he was serious, but he acted serious. I looked at the cast a couple of minutes. As he did so, Anderson's impression was that Patterson had constructed a model of a human foot from plaster. It was about 20 inches long. The heel and back portion of the foot was about six inches wide. The front of the foot was about an inch wider. Patterson described the, quote, walking man to Anderson as a giant man, in quotes. It wasn't a cast of a footprint, Anderson said. You get a footprint only if you find a print of a foot in the mud and take a cast of it. So I knew it, the plaster foot, was something he was manufacturing. I said to him, It looks like it's too narrow on the front part because the walking man couldn't stand erect. Based on the description you've given me of this tall man or tall animal, you might have to have it broader at the ball of the foot. Oh, no, he said. He stands right up. I said, well, it doesn't appear to be correct. It looks to me like it should be wider on the front where the ball of the foot is. For the length of the foot, it won't work. Well, I can solve that problem. I'll take some more casts, Roger said. Three days later, on a Saturday, Patterson returned. Anderson was busy with customers, but Patterson patiently waited for 20 minutes. When Anderson was free, Patterson revealed another package, this one wrapped in brown paper. As before, the two men retired to the back of the shop. He unfolded the paper and he said, what do you think of that? Lying on the paper was a white plaster foot like the first one, but the ball of this foot was about three inches wider and the heel was half the size as the first foot. Anderson's impression was that Patterson had made the foot by pouring plaster into a mold. I said, that looks better. That looks proportionate. He said, that's good. Okay, so you think that would be all right? I said, that's a heck of a lot better. See, I did not know the guy. did not know his intention. You have to realize that people came in and out of the store all the time. You don't know them. You just wait on them and service their needs. I thought he was pulling a joke on somebody. The white cast had some impurities in it. It wasn't real professional, and it wasn't perfectly formed. There were pieces of weeds in the plaster and what looked like carving marks on the sides where he had shaved off pieces of plaster, trimmed up the foot, maybe with a pocket knife, to make it appear a little bit more professional. I think he had carved on the cast after he'd taken it out of its formation. Patterson wrapped up the foot in the brown paper. Patterson wanted more information about camera equipment. Anderson explained that in addition to the camera, he'd need a light meter to set the f-stop on the lens, a tripod to stabilize the camera, and film with the correct sensitivity to light conditions, daylight or night. Uh, Then this goes on to discussion about camera. So there's a lot of things going on here. Yeah, yeah. One is there's an implication from Long and Anderson that the first footprint that came in couldn't have been a cast. So he was faking something from the get-go. But then when he comes back with this other footprint, because the discussion, there's two ways to cast the light on this discussion. I know, that's what
0: I'm about to yeah. ask you about. You know.
1: Yeah, because one way is to look at it and say, oh, he faked it, the footprint wasn't good enough, so then he came back and he had faked, made another one. Right. And the other one was better, and he knew that that would stand on its own. The other way to look at it is that he had taken a real cast from a footprint that he found, but the cast wasn't very good and it wasn't convincing enough. Mm -hmm. And so then he said, which is what he said to him, I'm going to go back and take another one. And then he came back with this cast that's more perfect that obviously had been poured. He said it was a real cast. I don't know how he's saying that the first one wasn't and the second one was. I didn't fully follow that. Mm -hmm. But what it seems to me is that it's all about how you interpret this conversation And I think you can look at that conversation and it could be that Roger found tracks Mm -hmm. and all he was really concerned about was taking casts of the right one to present the best evidence of what he'd found. Yeah. Yeah. And then the interpretation of this Anderson guy and also Long's perspective on Anderson's interpretation is, oh, he was faking it. He was practicing over and over. He may have just been practicing taking casts.
0: Right, <laughs> of real footprints.
1: Of real footprints, exactly.
0: Right. So, Or he had some in his collection. Well, I will say this, and it should be known, that apparently there are people that were interviewed by Greg Long who are, let's say, disappointed in the way that he presented their testimony in their interview. One thing that we came across was an article on the BFRO website, the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization. It's one of the main resources for Bigfoot researchers, this website and the group that puts it out. And this article was posted by Matt Moneymaker on January 31st of 2010. And there's a little blurb on here about Greg Long and his book. And I'm going to read this little section here under a picture of Greg Long. It says, the primary writer of the book promoting the new, quote, confession, end quote, is a man named Greg Long. Greg Long came to this book project with a definite agenda for casting doubt and aspersions on the Patterson creature. His path to undermining the creature was to characterize the filmographer as a petty crook. Now people around Yakima are talking about their dealings with him and the stories they say he distorted and stretched in his book. The book was designed to attach itself to any future debate about the subject, a debate that has become a fixture in many writing and journalism classes at the high school level and undergrad level. End quote from that article by Matt Moneymaker. So there you go. We should keep that in mind that some people aren't happy about the way that their information was presented. And like what you just said, you can kind of see it either way. Roger didn't come out and said, hey, I faked a bunch of prints. What does this look like? Right. I hey, didn't fake these. Or do you think this would fool somebody? Or did you? He just said, how's this look? Because you can see he's kind of being objective about it or cagey because he doesn't want to lead anybody. He's trying to get an honest opinion. Does this look fake? What do you think about it? That's all he said, so you can kind of take it either way. That's interesting. But about the Yakima area fakings or hoaxings, some possible motives that people have put forward are that Patterson was trying to pump up local interest for attending his lectures and selling his book, and or that he was trying to get a Yakima millionaire he knew, Floyd Paxton, interested enough to fund some of his expeditions.
1: Yeah, what's interesting about this, again, this is from Long's book. He interviewed a gentleman named Bob Swanson. Bob actually printed Roger's first book, Roger Patterson's book, Mm -hmm. that that we have the Chris Murphy reprint with the additional 80 pages in. And Bob apparently was, according to Long, and I guess what Bob told Long, he was never paid by Swanson for Mm -hmm. the first book that he printed. So there's a couple of things that that says. I mean, that does say that Roger wasn't great with money. Right. But it also says that Bob has an agenda because he's been stiffed by yeah, Patterson. right? So all this discussion about Floyd Paxton is coming from the publisher of Roger's book, who Roger never paid. Mm-hmm. So that's just something. There's a million rabbit holes we can go down here. I'm not going to read any sections yeah, on yeah. that. But if you want to read it, you got to pick up Greg Long's book, The Making of Bigfoot, The Inside Story. And you can read all about all of these mm-hmm. interviews with everybody under the sun that was related to it. But you just want to take everything, maybe with a grain of salt, about how the interviews were collected and if there was any sort of... Angle underlying angle on how they were an agenda, shared. but, but it, yes. yes, but it is part of the entire story, so should be. I mean, we considered. have an agenda. I'm, we're, <laughs> I'm, and I've owned up to it. I've yes. got an agenda here. Thank goodness you have. Uh, I'm trying to lean you <laughs> towards believing that this film might be the real thing. Right. I'm admitting it right here, and it is coloring everything that I'm saying mm-hmm. during the course of this series. But that agenda, I do want to say, is based on things that I discovered as we researched this series. Because when I started it. I was convinced it was a hoax. Yeah.
0: Well, I just want to say that. Yeah. Well, that's the process and what should happen with all of us. Look at everything, come up with your own conclusion and stick with it. Why not? There you go. Well, like yourself, those in favor of the PGF being real will usually lean on two major defense arguments for the film. The most important being that no matter the circumstantial evidence that you hear, or the testimony against Roger Patterson's character, you should still be focusing on what's actually been captured on the film for a serious scientific critical analysis. The second major usual defense is that if it really is a guy in an ape costume... Neither Roger Patterson nor Bob Gimlin or Bob Hieronymus had the costuming skill set to manufacture or even modify an existing costume to such an authentic degree, especially in 1967, nor did any of the three have the necessary knowledge of primate biomechanics and mobility to pull off such a distinctive walk, one that's it's not quite ape and it's not quite human, to some experts' opinions, and maybe impossible for a human to duplicate. So that's the other big defense for proponents. At first, physical anthropologist Grover Krantz thought that Patterson could have been capable of creating a PGF hoax if he had the right materials and initially dismissed the film from just seeing a few stills from it. However, later, upon closer examination of the film and from speaking with Patterson himself, he changed his mind and became one of the main supporters of the film, Although, of course, he received a lot of flack from his scientist peers about it. Well, many skeptics have noted that Patterson was a fairly decent sketch artist and could draw and paint wildlife and large animals like, horses pretty well, well enough. And you can see those examples of his drawings in the book he created. But it's not what I'd consider professional artist quality, you know, but it's certainly much better than what most people could sketch. So he has some talent, some natural talent. I believe in the art world he'd be known as a primitive no pun intended there, but uh, just somebody who's kind of like self-taught and self-trained maybe, but and could sketch well enough and, and paint. And the argument is that his artistic skill would be a great help for Patterson in being able to fabricate a decent costume of a large animal like Panty. However, upon interviewing Patterson, Krantz came to the conclusion that he didn't have the necessary knowledge of biomechanics to pull off the movement of Panty, and he said that Patterson had that blank look of a student trying to understand, but not quite getting the technical concepts but if he'd hoaxed it, he must have known about these uh, concepts. And there's a good on camera quote from Krantz about this when he appeared in In Search of episode on the Patterson Gimlin film. I don't know if you remember that, but he just basically said, This guy just looked blank when I was talking about animal mobility. Yeah. Like he was yeah. like, Let me fill it. Okay, never mind. I just can't get it. So his point being the walk is so sophisticated for a weird primate hybrid of some kind that Roger apparently, to his knowledge or to his feeling, did not have the chops to pull that off. Or to even instruct Bob Hieronymus on how to do it. Ultimately, though, most people who knew Patterson and Gimlin thought they weren't creatively clever enough to pull off such a convincing hoax. That's the generalization from most of their circle of people that they knew. So, Well, some skeptics are suspicious that Patterson goes out to make a Bigfoot documentary, and then, wouldn't you believe it, actually ends up filming one. And it turns out to be the best example of Bigfoot footage ever. So that's a little suspicious to a lot of people. Yeah. Even people we know. It's like, come on, he just happens to catch one? But some who have studied the PGF and Sasquatch, like anthropologist David Daigling, who seemed to be, he's kind of on the fence with the phenomenon and the PGF overall, he would offer that it, it made sense that Patterson just went to a place that he'd heard some, you know,
1: had some activity And then he actually found some for himself. Yeah, we have Daigling's book as well. It's called Bigfoot Exposed, An Anthropologist Examines America's Enduring Legend.
0: Exactly. So it's not not like, you know, people tell uh, Patterson, like, hey, you know, there's Bigfoot activity up in Northern California, and then he goes to Hawaii and finds some. Yeah. No, he goes to the place where he'd been hearing about this for years. You know, also keep in mind that Patterson had spent years before the incident searching for Sasquatch evidence, and he didn't really come up with much of anything. I think some prints and some stories, and I think he heard a yell once, but certainly nothing like this. So Bluff Creek was a likely place to search and would have had more of a probability of finding a Bigfoot, if they really did exist. But speaking of Bigfoot tracks and specifically checking out Bluff Creek, remember in part one when we were talking about how Patterson had heard stories from guys who said they had Bigfoot interactions, and one of them being Ray Wallace in Toledo, Washington, In Patterson's book, he mentioned visiting Ray Wallace near Mount St. Helens and that Wallace was familiar with the Bluff Creek Bigfoot track since 1958 and had even recorded a Bigfoot yell that he played for Patterson. Patterson said like, well, that's uh, interesting. It's not what we heard, but whatever, you know, he he just, he just, he had a collection of these sounds or that one. And he was like, well, I guess that's what you heard. Well, okay. I believe you. Well, turns out Ray Wallace had later claimed he had hoaxed those Bluff Creek tracks and told Roger Patterson where to find them. But not telling him they were fake, it seems, Wallace claimed that he made the prints using a big wooden foot-shaped form at different sites in California in 1958. So, right, so he's <laughs>
1: taking, is he taking credit for the three sets of tracks that were found by the construction equipment that drew Roger to the area in the first place? Yeah, it seems a little vague. There's yeah, because that's not uh, really clear, because right. wasn't it Roger's wife who heard about those footprints? And also, if they were saying that Ray Wallace faked them with a big wooden board or whatever that wouldn't account for three different sizes or sets. We're going to talk about that a little bit here
0: uh, towards the end of this little blurb because this definitely goes into whether or not Roger may have faked some stuff or whether whatever he found was faked to begin with. So he was led down the the garden path here by someone else.
1: Yeah, and I think that's important and I think I want to just openly acknowledge that there's no question that there are a wide series of Bigfoot hoaxers out in the world and have been for decades. There's no question. Yeah. So we're not saying that that doesn't exist anymore than we've been saying, at least up until this point, that Bigfoot is definitely real. Right. It's just all these things coexist and it just muddies the water, frankly, but you have to, you have to look at it.
0: You're absolutely right. But this story here from Ray Wallace doesn't check all the boxes. So let's take a little closer look at what Ray Wallace was actually claiming. So according to Wallace, He claimed that in 1982, Roger kept visiting and bugging him about Bigfoot info. And that's a little funny because when you read the book, it's like he's excited and he's excited to meet Ray and Ray was excited to talk about it. And what Ray's saying now, is like, yeah, this guy kept bogging me and bugging me. So it's like two perspectives and like Patterson saying like, no, this is great. We're sharing Bigfoot stories and and Ray's excited to talk and visit. And then, yeah. So he felt sorry for Patterson after learning about his cancer and that he was dead broke. And Patterson told him he wanted to find something that would make him a little money. So he told Patterson exactly where to go. And he told him to hang out around on that bank on Bluff Creek and stay there and watch that spot. And that's what Patterson did. So Seattle Times reporter Bob Young, at the request of author and cryptid researcher Lauren Coleman, our friend of the show, he wrote an article published December 5th, 2002, titled Lovable Trickster Created a Monster with Bigfoot Hoax. So you can actually dig up that article here. And according to the article, Michael Wallace, Ray Wallace's son, said his father had passed away of heart failure on November 26th, 2002, at the age of 84, that, quote, Ray L. Wallace was Bigfoot. The reality is, Bigfoot just died. End quote. And now the truth can finally be told. That's not part of the quote, but that's part of the article. Yeah. <laughs> Ray Wallace orchestrated the prank that created Bigfoot in 1958. There you go. All
1: mystery solved. All Bigfoots, all Bigfoot sightings yes. go back to this one guy. Now, exactly. there are no shortage of skeptical thinkers that I'm sure will be absolutely okay with this idea.
0: Yeah, but let's look at it logically and open-mindedly, critically. Now, the article goes on to say that some experts had suspected that Ray Wallace had planted the tracks as a prank that launched the term Bigfoot, but that Wallace and his family never publicly admitted the 1958 hoax until now, and that with his passing, it was time to finally come clean. So Mark Chorvinsky, editor of Strange Magazine, who promoted Wallace's claim and believes that he is the one that, quote unquote, fathered Bigfoot, states, quote, The fact is there was no Bigfoot in popular consciousness before nineteen fifty eight. America got its own monster, its own abominable snowman, thanks to Ray Wallace, end quote. Well, what's funny about Mark Chorvinsky, former stage musician, and special effects film director, I think uh, film segment. So right. It's like the, uh, the amazing Randy. It's somebody who's seen how the sausage is made and, and knows the secrets. And to them, it's like, no, I have seen all this stuff. I think my, I, one but- quote from Kravinsky just said, anything is possible. Look, you could film and fake anything.
1: I just want to remind everyone that Albert Osman's story took place in 1924. Of course, yeah. what's being said here is only that it wasn't in the popular consciousness, and there's probably good amounts of support for that where it became part of the zeitgeist, but to say that it was invented would be wholly untrue.
0: Right. Well, Wallace's family described him as being a very kind-hearted guy, just a big kid all his life, and hoaxes and pranks were just something that he loved to do, and he didn't mean to hurt anybody. Maybe that's why he wanted to help out Patterson just a big kind-hearted guy. Well, his nephew, Dale Lee Wallace, who says he has the Alderwood foot carvings that Ray made, said that his uncle just did it for the joke, but then he was afraid to tell anyone because they'd be so mad at him, which you can imagine they would be, because right. they spent a lot of time and trouble going to these remote places that Wallace claims he went. But if you remember us talking about it earlier, I, I think it was Jerry Crewe, A bulldozer operator for Walls Construction, his company, who discovered the footprints in August 1958 in Humboldt County, California, circling and then walking away from his rig. And the Humboldt Times in Eureka, California, ran a front page story on the prints and coined the term Bigfoot. Remember that? That was a line that was hours and hours ago. Well, (laughs) uh, Well, from that moment on, his proponents claim Bigfoot became a national sensation for years after that wallace had continued to run with the prank at one time offering to sell texas millionaire tom slick a bigfoot and according to lauren coleman put out a press release saying he wanted to buy a baby bigfoot for a million dollars baby bigfoot i want my baby bigfoot uh he also (laughs) cut a record of supposed bigfoot sounds and printed up bigfoot posters yeah but he also faked footage and photos of bigfoot So for somebody that was like, ah, I just want to do it as a joke and didn't want to make anybody mad, he's really putting his foot down into it, you could say. Pun intended. Yes. His big wooden alder carved foot. Well, Mark Chorvinsky, who says that there was no popular consciousness of Bigfoot prior to 1958, said, quote, Ray told me that the Patterson film was a hoax and that he knew who was in the suit, end quote. And from the Seattle Times article, quote, Michael Wallace said his father called the Patterson film a fake, and said that he had nothing to do with it. But he said his mother admitted that she had been photographed in a Bigfoot suit. So that's interesting. Okay. So the mother is playing in on the on the prank here. Yeah. That's the end quote on there. And then Michael Wallace goes on to say he had used several people in his movies. Michael had. Yes, Michael Wallace had claimed that. That's what his father said. Yeah. About the faking. So what's interesting here is that there's a lot of fakery and hoaxing and I guess just one of those kind of guys that Where loves the attention that's a good question i don't know there was some talk here uh, or more discussion that lauren coleman had claimed that uh, i guess the uh, international press had confused the patterson film for some of wallace's film and therefore their deduction was that it was obviously a really hokey hoax oh okay there's some talk about that lauren coleman goes on to explain that in one of his books that that did not add to the credibility of the pgf Right. Because I'm sure they weren't as good. I'll just say that right now. I'm sure nowhere near as good. Nothing to take away from the performance of Mrs. Wallace. (laughs) But just that, that just doesn't seem possible. That's where we're going with this thing being a suit, is that that's one incredible suit, I got to tell you, if it's a suit. You know, so there's some problems here with the story. But what's interesting, I think, to note right here is that Ray Wallace is not saying that he had anything to do with the Patterson-Gimlin film, only that he pointed Roger... Patterson to, to the that area, area where yeah. he claims he laid down some tracks. Right. Because another thing to note in the article, there's no other mention of the other sizes of Big Feet. He would have had to wear, in addition to the 16-inch carvings Wallace said he had a friend make for him. He didn't make it himself. He said he had a friend carve them. That's another guy out there who apparently knows uh, what the hoax is all about. Right. Right. You know, was in on the joke. And that Wallace said that he and his brother Wilbur slipped on their own feet to hoax the tracks. Okay. That's how they were made. He and Wilbur were having a joke. Uh, right. Wilbur Wallace. Okay. Wilbur Wallace. Okay. Causing a lot of problems and having a chuckle about it. it just blows me away that you would... I guess it's the attention and it makes you oh, laugh. It's pretty and, funny. I mean, I get it being from the well, South. I, would, I can <laughs> see it's a little, you know, backyard
1: humor. Yeah. I, it's funny. I,
0: I guess until it gets on the national level and yeah. then it's
1: another thing. It's one thing. What that, are you going to do then when you hit the, well, when it gets, I, I you do you, 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 you got to ride it out. No, I don't think you well, keep yeah, of going. course you
0: do. I don't think you keep making movies and posters if he's afraid that like, wow, once people find out they're going to be really mad at me. And that's why he never said anything. Well, they're not
1: gonna necessarily be mad. He probably thinks that everyone will think it's funny. You're yeah. approaching it from the mindset no, no. of like well, that, the believer is right. mad at the hoaxer, but there's plenty of hoaxers that have lots of people that probably won't be mad.
0: Right. But that is what he told his nephew. Right. And his I guess his family. That's why okay. he never came forward because, like, geez, people are gonna be really upset. Okay. They're gonna be steamed so with think me. That. Okay. Well, that's what he's saying anyway. Yeah. But yeah. it's just weird that he can't help himself. That's what that's all I'm saying. He just gotta he's gotta keep it going here. Well, in addressing what you were saying earlier, remember there were three sizes of feet discovered at Bluff Creek, a nine inch, 14 and a half to 15 inch, and a 17 inch long set of footprints varying slightly with the soil and the foot movement. Those were the measurements of the casting. So that's, remember, that's why Roger had believed, geez, maybe there's a family here. Maybe she's going to be like an angry mama grizz. I better not,
1: maybe we should follow her into the brush. Yeah. And he said to Bob, don't leave me here. (laughs)
0: Yeah, no horse.
1: I got no gun. It's a little quiet. I'm out of film.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Right. If you're you're going to track that thing, if you're going
0: to get attacked, at least film it. yeah, Yeah. What if
1: it's not alone?
0: Maybe Wallace had different sizes made, but Wallace's nephew says the wooden feet were 16 inches long. That's at least I'm just going by that one article, the big wrap up from the Seattle Times about his whole... Coming out on this, you have to consider a few things here. First, Patty's footprints were 14 and a half inches long. Okay. So, not quite the 16. There could be some variances, but two inches is a bit much just
1: on soil conditions. Well, Um, then there's something interesting about that, isn't there? If there were three sets of prints and they were nine inches, 14 and a half, and then 17, then, then that would suggest if Patty was 14 and a half, she was the middle size.
0: That's what I'm saying. There's Bigfoot Jr. And Papa Foot. Papa Foot. Yeah. Boy,
1: imagine that. If if you think Patty's real, how big would Papa be? We're going
0: to talk about Patty's physical dimensions. She's a well-built lady. Just imagine, yeah, the male of the species, which have been reported. Well, at least we know from the footprints here, must be bigger. Or there's a bigger, there's just a bigger Bigfoot. But she's massive. And so, yeah, imagine the size of the larger one at 16 and 17 inches long. Well, 16 mm. being, yeah, those are the size of the, the wooden tracks that Wall City made. 17 inches being the largest size seen at the site.
1: My foot's right around almost exactly a foot long.
0: Right. And so... Um, well, that's good to know. I'll, I'll keep that in mind when we have to measure
1: off something out in the woods. You know, but it's just interesting thinking I'm 6'2". Yeah. And that's where my foot comes in at. And oh, yeah. this is another three to five inches longer.
0: Well, as we said back at part one, too, there are some extraordinary specimens of humans. With extraordinarily large feet, but uh, yeah, that's one. <laughs> well, remember the quote unquote renegade Indian that they uh, that that old time story
1: said that they. Oh yeah, from our giant series. No,
0: no, this is in the Bigfoot. Oh. Uh, yeah, this is one of the stories contained in Rogers' book. Oh, uh, oh, I was thinking there, of... again. It's a story to compare that. I mean, it it wasn't the 1680s; it was like the 1880s. But they had to uh, capture this guy who was uh, going around killing people, um, kind of a renegade uh, outlaw type, and he had just enormous proportions, and this is hard to believe. Well, there are several problems with Wallace's hoaxing being the sole explanation for the Bigfoot tracks, pun intended. Again, it still doesn't explain what was captured on film, which Wallace said that he had nothing to do with, okay? You always got to come back to the film. In some respects, I'm just focused on that. You And everyone else who takes it seriously, ignore everything else. Go to the film. What is on the film? Well, you know, I do believe that he may have well faked some footprints. But how could he have faked all of the maybe hundreds? I don't know. Maybe there's a thousand. I don't know. Uh, all the way up from California through Washington State into Canada not to mention the rest of the country and the rest of the world, maybe accounting, yeah, I don't know, thousands of prints seen by people all over Uh, and different variations. Prints found like uh, the Cripplefoot. We're going to talk about Cripplefoot tracks uh, in a little bit more detail later. That's a very specific track found that's really baffled some scientists. You know, these tracks have varying shapes uh, and size characteristics. So Wallace would have needed a wide range of carvings. Also, it's unlikely that he could have mimicked the weight necessary to embed some of the depressions, as deep as they were, and the long strides would have been difficult to keep up and not stumble and fall over. Well, yeah, that's one of the 40 inch, forty-one inches, I think. Yeah, yeah were pretty long. Chorvinsky says that there was no Bigfoot in the American zeitgeist before this, been and maybe while. that's true. Been <laughs> well, a while. Well, you know, welcome maybe, back. I missed you. We both yes. did. Well, you know, maybe that's true for the American consciousness. And then Chorvinsky says that any prior stories going back on record as far as the 1800s were just mistaken or hoaxes themselves. But it doesn't seem likely the Wallace fake footprints could account for every story, in my opinion. Yeah. Chorvinsky says he wants to see some evidence beyond the anecdotal. Well, I think you have a piece of evidence right now, don't you? Yeah, you we have the film.
1: Unless you don't accept that as evidence. Well, this may lead one to wonder, where is the film Now, where is the Patterson Gimlin film? The truth is, no one knows where either the first or second original roles of film are today, but there are, of course, a few speculations out there. According to Greg Long in his book on page 188 of the book that we have referenced many times already, after Patterson had sold ownership of the original film to American National Enterprises, or ANE, they went bankrupt sometime after his death. Then Peregrine Entertainment bought A&E, and later Peregrine was bought by the Century Group of Los Angeles. In 1996, the Century Group also went bankrupt, and Bigfoot researcher and author Peter Byrne went to Deerfield Beach, Florida, where the company's assets were being auctioned off. Century Group's film collection was in storage in Los Angeles, but the film was not found there. It was missing from where it was supposedly being stored at least seven copies of the original film were made, which is only what researchers have to study nowadays.
0: Yeah, just imagine that. There's no studying, no critical study done of the very original film.
1: There are first-generation copies, however.
0: First-generation copies, yes. But if you're not familiar with analog images and stuff, I mean, I know we're all spoiled now because a digital copy is essentially as good as the original. It's just numbers. It's data representing one generation of copy to the next. But in film, that's an actual optical copy of the original. And and it's like a photo. If you've ever done this with your photocopier and made uh, the same copy like 10 times in a row, it starts to get unreadable. That's what's happening here. It's an optical process. So... It's just slightly not as good as the original. So you get that much more detail. Like imagine the things we could see on Patty, just maybe some teeth, maybe some facial detail, an eyeball, something that maybe just pops out just a little bit clearer. But it's a, it is amazing. That's one of the things that researchers point to is that the fact that the color film is that sharp that what we're looking at are blow-ups of yes. individual frames and we can get that much detail out of them. It's, it's pretty amazing. And that's also why the film has endured as such a mystery. Because if it was any blurrier, people would just, yeah, come on.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, you may remember that we have mentioned William or Bill Munns a few times and that we have actually interviewed him for this series. Mm -hmm. You're going to be hearing him before the series is finished. And he's an expert on not only costumes, but also film analysis. And he wrote that the original film was last seen by Rene DeHinden and Bruce Bonney in 1980 when DeHinden made a high quality cibachrome prints from the film. And between then and 1996, it went missing from its location in the vault in Los Angeles. Oh, that's terrible. That's appalling. Well,
0: we're We're both former video vault managers. Video
1: and film vault managers. That was my first job before, well, actually it was my second job. My first job was runner, which Mm -hmm. is a job that doesn't exist anymore, where I had to take tapes all over Hollywood. Yes. Videotapes. Then it was the vault manager, which is where for the company I worked at, there was all the film and video yeah. and the dailies. And the film was very expensive, expensive to process and very, very important. Sure. And I would like to point out that in a couple of years of managing the vault, I never lost one element. Oh, there you go. That's that quite a record. However, there, there yeah. was one roll of original camera negative from a very expensive shoot, probably a Michael Bay thing or something, Coke commercial. I don't remember what it was. We yeah. couldn't find it for four hours. Wow. And yeah. then it turned out that that roll of film yeah. was in a cardboard box that someone had put plastic packing material over so that it looked like an empty box but we did find it
0: oh geez yeah i remember if it went missing but that's the idea here is that every spot in a film vault has a designating spot because you got to find stuff yeah it's all catalog tens of thousands of elements you got to go find it and this thing like a movie is missing from its slot yes Well, as for the rights to the footage, that's another thing. You can have the footage itself, then you can have the rights to the footage, the image itself. According to Greg Long, a legal settlement in 1978 gave Renee DeHinden 51% of controlling rights to the film footage, 51% of the videocassette rights, and 100% rights of all the frames of the clip. De Hinden bought out Bob Gimlin's rights. And, you know, Gimlin never received any money from the film. Right. So he just, yeah, fine, take them. So he <laughs> he sold them to Renee. They were on good terms. I think yes. everybody loved Renee. Yeah.
1: To hear Bob tell it, it was kind of a token arrangement. It's like, yeah. you know what, take t- you know. Yeah, take this it. This belongs with you.
0: Well, somebody they trusted who was uh, very serious about it and was a, a good, uh, good-hearted guy. The famous frame 352, or I guess actually it's frame 354, because uh, Bill Munns discovered two extra frames at the beginning of the clip during his research with a first-generation copy kept by Patricia Patterson. Right, Rogers, so, Rogers' widow. Exactly, yes. So that technically should be included. I guess it makes a difference in their calculations. Actually, every piece of this film has been scrutinized and is important. The number of frames, totally. The filming speed, everything about this film has been analyzed because it's been that compelling to people. Well, that frame, that famous look back with the arms swinging that you see on everything now, including uh, uh, <laughs> animojis. Yes. Yeah. Would you, you paste your bitmoji face in there. That all apparently is in the public domain. It's just out there in the world so much with no claims from any copyright holder. So for all intents and purposes, Patty now belongs to the world. <laughs>
1: that's going to wrap up part three of our series on the patterson gimlin film we're dark next or week. are we oh maybe we aren't keep an eye on your feeds friends we may have a commercial
0: free interview with a previously unknown primate discovered on an uncharted and lonely island Ooh, nice clue But we'll be officially back the week after that with part four of this series. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Boland. I'm Josh Shearer. Hi, I'm Sarai Sosi. What's up, my fellow humans and others? I'm Sean Nelson.
1: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed
0: by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com, or interact with us and other listeners on
1: Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.